Um, let's, to start off with, open up our Bibles to Acts 17. I was thinking a lot about Acts 17 while I was studying this week. And I want to start off our time um, with reading from Acts 17. And, and this is the portion of Paul's missionary work where he is in Athens, and I just want to point out a few things to you from this. Acts 17, verse 16, now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being, continually, provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And it goes on to say that he was reasoning in the synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Greeks. But then if you jump down to verses 20, uh, 22, uh, so Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Just, just a, a seemingly massive word of praise, right? Who doesn't want to be very religious in all respects? It sounds like a good thing. But he goes on, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, uh, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their inhabitation, that they may seek God, if perhaps that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we, are, we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to suppose that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by craft and thought of men. Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul speaks to people that are very religious. And today we're going to talk about people that I would consider very religious in their own way, although every religion has a form of very religiousness, even Christianity, you could say. But before we talk about this uh, next group, which I admit I, I know the least about, and going into this week I knew the least about, and I still feel like I don't know a lot about, before we begin, there's one big, very important question we have to answer. Is it pronounced seek, or is it pronounced sick? Who, who wants to stab at it? How many of you think you know? How many of you think you know? Uh, yes, Connie, what is it? You're, you're sure it's seek. Who told you it's seek? You worked at a place that had a lot, and they, they said to you that it's seek. You're pretty sure, yes? Yes? So for the life of me, I spent at least 15 minutes trying to figure this out. And for the life of me, I'm still not sure. 
I, I see Merriam-Webster pronounced, it pronounces, uh, it's pronounced seek. You know, uh, Cambridge Dictionary, seek. And then I get on YouTube and I'm like, how do you pronounce this? They're saying seek. And then in the comments, I am an Indian. It's pronounced sick. So it's like, I don't know. It seems to me as though it goes both ways. Um, and perhaps maybe in India, they pronounce it sick. And over here in America, they pronounce it Sikh. Maybe, maybe it's kind of like my experience. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe it's like my experience with my last name. I just gave up trying to correct people. Yeah, Papillion. Yeah, that's right. That's me. Right? I, I don't know. I don't know how it is. But they pronounce it either way. But um, it seems as though some of them prefer Sikh. But I, I'm not sure yet. But it, it, that, that, that's ongoing. And speaking of being a learner, that is what Sikh, we'll just say Sikh for this morning, that, that is what Sikhs are. That's what Sikhs mean. To be a Sikh means you are, by definition, a learner. You are a follower. You're seeking spiritual guidance to get close to the God, and you're seeking spiritual guidance through a teacher, a guru. That is what a Sikh is, someone who pursues God through the grace given to them through a guru. Today, Sikhism can be found in every major country, although the majority of Sikhism is found in the northern area of Pakistan and India. But there are somewhere between 25 and 28 million Sikhs in the U.S. today. Um, there's a lot of Sikhs in Bakersfield, in the, particularly in the, I find, in the southwest uh, corner of Bakersfield, over by Noah Brummett's house. Um, but, I mean, that's, there's, 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 200, there's 25 to 28 million Sikhs worldwide, but there's only uh, 500,000 of those in the United States. So a very small, a small portion of the total Sikh worldwide population is found in, in America, actually. Um, Sikhism, though, is considered a, one of the larger religions in the world, and Last week, somebody asked me how many religions there are. There are a lot. Um, but here are the top eight religions in the world. Number one is Christianity or some form of Christianity, although I would, I would argue a lot about all the, all the forms of Christianity under that branch. Number one is Christianity. Number two is Islam. Number three is Hinduism. Number four is Buddhism. Number five is Shintoism. That's a, a native religion in Japan. And number six is Ta. Taoism, that's, a, that's an indigenous religion in China. And then there's number seven, which is Sikhism. And then number eight is Judaism. So that's kind of the, the top worldwide religions. Uh, but what are Sikhs known for in general? Uh, maybe you've recognized that. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. So I'll show you a few pictures here. So they're, they're known probably to you for wearing a turban of some kind or maybe a, la, a long flowing uh, of gown or something. They, they are also known to carry around certain ceremonial objects, like a short uh, ceremonial dagger. We'll talk about that more. Um, I, I think, by and large, from, from reading about them, Sikhs are uh, kind of have experienced a lot of misunderstanding in their life, particularly younger Sikhs like you have experienced a lot of mockery. People make fun of them for their turban on their head. Hey, why don't you take that thing off? What do you got on your head there, man? You know, it's like that's their common experience, and I think it actually brings them together as a community. Hey, we're just used to being made fun of and insulted, and it's, it's kind of what draws them together. But actually, if you think about it, if you've ever watched like Indiana Jones or anything, you like Sikhs. You really do. They're like, 
they're like always on the good guys team, right? Actually, I really like Sikhs. The more I get to read about them, the more I actually really enjoy them. They're always on the good guy side, if we were to qualify what good guy is. They're on my side of the wars. Uh, so, right, they're, they're, they're from India for the most part, so they're always a part of like the, the British uh, Commonwealth and fighting on, on those sides. But once again, Sikhs have had a sad history of being misunderstood and kind of picked on or teased. For example... A big day in the life of Sikhs is often September 11th, 2001. Now, most of you weren't even born then, but what happened? What happened? We, we had uh, terrorist attacks on various places in the United States, and what happened in the news like the same day that these terrorism attacks were happening? People were trying to ask the question, who did this? And it became very clear, we know who did this, it was who? It was Osama bin Laden. And then that picture started showing up. Now, what would you do if you are a Sikh and people are saying, Osama bin Laden did this, the guy with the turban, right? Suddenly, all of these Sikhs who are not connected at all with Islamic terrorism are being looked at as though they are terrorists. So that's kind of part of the world that Sikhs live in, if you think about it. That is kind of their struggle, but that also, I think, has drawn them together. But the question we are going to ask today is, are Sikhs really wrong? Once again, by by conviction, I am a convinced Christian that the only way to God the Father is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But by conviction, I also hold that all other religions are wrong. But that's, that's a hard question to, to answer. Like, are you saying that this person is wrong? Are you saying that that person is wrong? But by conviction, I, am, I would say that Sikhs are wrong. But we want to ask that question with, 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 with proper understanding. But we also want to have the proper goal in mind. My, my goal here is not just to make you feel better than people that are wrong. It's not just to make you feel like you've got all these arguments that you could beat them up in a fight, so to speak. My goal is to give you a heart of love and concern and, and compassion for people that do not have the truth of Jesus Christ. And, and my goal for you even is to say, I want to be someone who sees these people as image bearers of God and has great respect and honor and love for them and wants to get to know them. And I want to have as a goal in my life, if I interact with a Sikh, to treat them like nobody else treats them which is to genuinely love and care and be interested in them, right? You will be different from a lot of other Americans if you treat them that way. If you actually follow Jesus in the way you act towards unbelievers. That's my goal. But are Sikhs really wrong? First question I'm going to ask is where did Sikhism, uh, that's referring to the religion of the Sikhs, uh, where did Sikhism come from? Um, now, this is get a little strange, but this is Eastern religions for you. Uh, Sikhs do not believe that any religion, including their own, has the ultimate authority on religion. So, so they don't believe that any religion can say they are the one true religion. And they would even say that about themselves. Now, just a little critique. To say that, is to make an ultimate statement about religion. But that's just beside itself. They would say in their, in their writings that, hey, we, we, don't, we don't say we're the ultimate religion. We say all religions are equally right. 
But that is an ultimate statement of truth. You can't say that without, in a sense, claiming that you have ultimate truth. Your ultimate truth is that nobody has ultimate truth. Just, just, just point out. Uh, but, but my best understanding of Sikhism is that it's a, it's a joining between kind of an Eastern mystical form of religion. It's a joining of Hinduism, which is in India, with a more monotheistic, a only worshiping one God, a religion of Islam in, in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, I think it's helpful to think about Sikhism geographically. Sikhism comes or, or originated in the Punjab area, which actually covers part of Pakistan and the tip of India. And what do you know about Pakistan and India? That is where two religions collide geographically. That's where Islam and Hinduism collide. So it makes sense that here in this area, we'd have a religion that kind of joins these two things together. And I'll do my best to try to explain that. Um, the founder of Sikhism, um, a guru, get used to the name guru, a guru named uh, Nanak, uh, as a young man, he listened to, that's him, by the way. He always looks like that in every picture. Um, uh, he listened to both uh, Hindus and Muslims, and he was very frustrated with the world he lived in. Particularly, he was frustrated with the Hindu caste system. Who knows what the caste system is? Anybody, anybody not know what it is? So, so it's, it's okay to be honest. It's like a cast on my arm. No, it's, it's, I understand that uh, confusion, but it's, like, it's a system where people believe, hey, you are a lesser human, because of your station in life. You know, if, if, you're, if you're a plumber, you're less than a doctor. And you've got to be faithful to your caste system, otherwise uh, karma will get you in the next life, and you'll have a worse position. So if the, the more faithful you are in the position God has given you, whether that means you're a bug or an animal or a human or a king, the more faithful you are, the, the more you'll move up or down on the caste system. And that's also called... Karma, But anyway, um, Nanak was very frustrated with the injustice and the evil that he saw in his world, and he had lots of conversations with Hindus and Muslims. He was said to travel all over the place. But before that, he had a moment of enlightenment, and it, well, it was while he was bathing in a river, he disappeared. I, I, I imagine what happened was, at least in the stories, he went under and never came up, in, according to the stories. And nobody knew where he went. They thought he was dead. But actually, he was in the presence of God for three days. Sound familiar? Um, and, and then he finally came up again, once again, and declared that he had had a moment of spiritual enlightenment, that the eternal guru, the eternal spirit, the eternal God, had enlightened him. And he came out, the first thing he, he said was, there is no Hindu or Muslim. There is no Hindu or Muslim. He, he now said that he was indwelt by the eternal guru and he could enlighten people to draw close to God, the one true God. Once again, Sikhism is a mixture of two things. It's a mixture of, of Hinduism and um, Islam beliefs. And, and he became the first guru and there would have been nine more gurus that would fall follow him, and they would all receive the spirit of the eternal guru, until finally the last guru put all of the hymns that all of these gurus wrote into one book, and that book is called the Holy Guru Granth Sahib, and it is now their sacred text that they use for meditating. A few other uh, real important gurus to point out, the fourth guru, Ram Das, built the Golden Temple, 
This might be another thing you're very familiar with. Maybe you've seen a picture of the Golden Temple. It's in, it's in northern India. He built that. The sixth guru, Guru Hargo Bin, I believe, started uh, the practice of carrying weapons as self-defense. Uh, I think by nature, um, um, Sikhs want to be pacifists, but they're also another religion, and they didn't get along very well with the the Muslims around them. So soon they had to start carrying weapons for self-defense. We'll talk more about that. And then the 10th guru, the final guru, uh, Gabing Singh, um, he wrote down all of the hymns in a final authoritative volume. And now it's said that the spirit of the guru is no longer in, in human gurus, but now in this scripture form. So that is what they use for sacred medic, uh, meditation. Um, one more quick story about this 10th guru that I find is very interesting. He, he uh, kind of established a new standard of dedication. You are a true Sikh if you follow his standard. And this story is crazy. It was a test of loyalty. Do you see this picture of this uh, guru over here? It's got, he's got a sword in his hand. It's got blood on it. Well, he came out from behind the curtain one day to a crowd of people. And with the sword in his hand, he was like, who is dedicated to me? I don't know everybody is, but he said, okay, who is dedicated to me enough to be beheaded for me? And one, one hand pops up, right? And so the guy goes back behind the curtain. They hear this chopping noise, and then he comes out with a bloody sword. And he's like, who else is dedicated enough to me that they're willing to be beheaded? And another hand pops up, and he does this five times. You're like, why would anybody do this? Because they were dedicated to the eternal guru's spirit. But then it, it happened, it was just all a big ruse, and then all five guys came out, and it was really a goat that he was killing, um, and these men were known as the, the pure, the Khalsa, the pure, and they were the ones that dedicated themselves the most, and they became the leaders. And of course, this established this, this five Ks of, of true dedication, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Because next up, I want to talk about what do Sikhs practice? What do they do? And this might help you get your mind a little bit more around Sikhism. I, I suggest to you that, by and large, you will like Sikhs the more you get to know them. You will appreciate their, their morality and their goodness and their character. Um, the, the goal of the Sikh is to live such a good life of honor and continual meditation on God that you finally merge into the life of God yourself and kind of cease to be you and be joined to God. Here, here's just some basic practices that they live by. You, you treat everyone equally. We'll talk about that more, but they don't see any distinction between race or male or female. They see all people the same. There's no caste system. There's nothing. All people are equal, and you need to treat everyone equally. Um, here's three primary principles that they practice. You, you absorb yourself in meditation and prayer. You make an honest income, and you share selflessly. That's very important to Sikhs. Um, or here's uh, four random commandments that they all must keep. Uh, never cut your hair. Don't harm the body with tobacco or intoxication. Don't eat sacrificial meat. Don't commit adultery. So they're, they're very uh, moral, you could say. And they, they try to keep their mind and their heart pure so that they can focus on meditation. But there's something that we probably all know Sikhs for, and that is the, called the five articles of faith. Let me just show this. Perhaps you're familiar with Sikhs for this reason. The, these, 
These are, there are items that are very important to their identity. Um, and, and here I got a picture over here. You might not be able to see it, but uh, over here is kind of talking about these, these very important pieces of identification. Like I said, all Sikhs don't cut their hair. They believe God created them with hair, so they never cut it, not on their face or, or on their head. But men in particular... Are, are called to wear this turban. But let's just talk about it. First off, their long hair, their long uncut hair is kind of a, a way for them to honor their creator's original intent. And then, of course, they wear a turban, and that is very important. A man or a woman can wear a turban, or a child can wear a turban, but the man has to wear it. It's optional for the, the women. And it, it is considered a proud, distinguishing mark. Once again, they never cut their hair. They just kind of wind it up and braid it up very very um, um, neatly, and then they put it on their head, and then they put a turban over that, and this turban is a public sign that I am a Sikh, and I'm not ashamed of it. That is why they wear a turban. Or there's this wooden comb that they carry with them wherever they go, and this symbolizes their cleanliness or their discipline. Every single day they wash their hair, and then they comb it, and then they, they put it up very cleanly and nicely, and this is part of their religion. They also wear a steel bracelet, and this is a sign of their faith. It is a sign of, in one sense, being restrained, and I am restrained for God alone. And it's also a sign of remembering who God is. God is eternal and he never ends. He keeps going. Um, they also have a small ceremonial sword. This is not really used for a weapon, but it's more just to kind of um, show that they are willing to defend their faith if they have to, and they'll defend against evil and injustice. And then there's also, you can see it, the the, the undergarment, this symbolizes self-control and chastity. And, and a male Sikh, if he follows the five articles, will wear these always in public. Um, but what do Sikhs believe? What do Sikhs believe? Let me give you a short sketch of my best understanding of what they believe. Um, and, and this is really, once again, just to kind of give you a basic understanding so that maybe you can engage somebody in a conversation with a little bit of knowledge. Um, first off... They believe that there is only one God. There is only one God. He is the same God for, this is where it gets interesting, all people of all religions. There's only one God, and he is the same one. All worship the same singular creator God. And that sounds kind of okay if, if you think about it. But then when they describe this God, he, he, does, he doesn't have a gender, so I shouldn't say he. It doesn't have a gender, it's shapeless, it's beyond description, but this God created all things, and this God may be known as Yahweh to some, it may be known as uh, Allah to others, but it's the same God that they worship. But it's not a personal God, but it is a God, it's an essence known through dedicated meditation. And, and I think they would even say God is everywhere in all things, and and of all things, but yet he is still one God. Once again, they kind of borrow from Hinduism, which sees one God, but lots of all uh, various uh, manifestations of that one God. He likes to appear in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. And that would be what Hindus kind of believe, although that's a little tricky to say. Um, so, so once again, Sikhs don't believe in the distinction between peoples. There is no difference between male and female. Caste shouldn't exist. Race distinctions should not exist because God himself, the creator, does not have a gender or a form or anything like that. All is equal. 
But also another interesting thing, when, when you try to understand the God that the Sikhs worship, you quickly understand that this, this God is, is beyond comprehension, which is, I would say, a true statement about a true God that I would worship as well. But they would say this God does not really have a name that adequately captures him. You can only know this God through description. So you'll hear description upon description of what this God is like. The guru Nanak again said this, There is but one God, his name is Truth. He, he is a he, I don't know why he said that. Uh, he is the creator, he fears none, he is without hate, he never dies, he is beyond the, cir- the cycle of births and deaths, he is self-illuminated, he is realized by the kindness of the true guru. Once again, you need a guru to know this God. He was true in the beginning, he was true when the ages commenced, and has ever been true. He is also true now, for sure. And, and they would describe him or it as the cause of all things. Um, everything is the result of this God. He causes all things. He, uh, this God creates all things. This God is without fear. This God is without also hate or envy. Once again, no anger, no hate. This God is self-created. Um, this God is compassionate. This God is always forgiving. If you come to this God the right way, this God is pure bliss. It's better than a drug, they would say. To meditate on this God is the best thing ever. This God is savior, sustainer, destroyer. This God is everything. It's everywhere and in everything. Yet this God is also outside of the life cycle, we'll talk about that in a minute, that we are struggling in. So the, the effort, the ongoing effort of the Sikh's existence is to meditate on this God and slowly merge itself into this God. And that that's, brings us, sorry, I kind of got behind on my slides. Um, no adequate name. Uh, the soul continues through cycles. This is also what the Sikhs believe. And this is where they start bringing in more of the Hindu element of you know karma and reincarnation. The soul, they say on their website, goes through cycles of births and deaths before it reaches the human form. So, just, just catch that. You, you already have gone through many, many cycles of life and death before you even become a human. That means you at one point were a bug, perhaps, um, a plant, perhaps, an animal, perhaps, before you even get to your human form. The goal of our life, it continues, is to lead an exemplary existence so that no so that one may merge with God. Sikhs should remember God at all times and practice living a virtuous and truthful life while maintaining a balance between their spiritual obligations and temporal obligations. Once again, they believe in what we know as um, reincarnation or how they sometimes refer to it as transmigration, the transmigration of the soul. Your soul is in process from going to a lesser state to a higher state. Now, once again, maybe I'm reading two different versions of Sikhism, but that sounds like there are distinctions. But anyway, um, the hell that the Sikhs fear is not some sort of future thing, but a present life that they live. And there, there is no afterlife or the beyond this world. It's just a cycle continuing on and on, and that is what they want to escape. Uh, reincarnation, karma, this is their daily hell that they live that they're trying to escape through embracing the life that they have been given. But really, there's no hell and there's no heaven. 
There is no judgment. There is no justice. There is no righteousness. It is just God and merging yourself into this God. Sikhs would say they don't work their way to heaven, but they do work to escape this life and the continual cycle. The greatest sin in Sikhism is the sin of self, the ego. It is the pursuit of self above all others. And it is that pursuit of yourself that comes in the way of you pursuing God. So egotism hinders you. Pride, lust hinders your pursuit of God. Greed, anger, uh, attachment even hinders your free pursuit and merger into the eternal God. And you can only reach this goal through daily communion, uh, meditation, and dedication. And that brings us to the next thing. Um, you can only merge with God through the grace of the guru and through meditation. And that's where the holy scriptures come in. But once again, uh, the, the goal of their life is to try to, uh, this is what I read somewhere, is, is to meditate on everything outside of you and then meditate on everything inside of you because God is everywhere and in everything. And then as you meditate on this, you become more and more connected to this God and slowly merge your way into him well, as you forget about yourself and merge your way into God. Once again, it sounds a lot like Eastern religions to me where you need to slowly become like non-existent. You have no desires, no feeling, and only then, according to Buddhism, do you reach nirvana, like the existence where you no longer exist and all is just God. And that is all Buddhists are trying to seek. Um, but, but God is everywhere and you're trying to liberate your soul to merging with him. That's the best I can do. Um, here's here's a, a spiritual kind of evaluation. These are four steps that every person moves through um, in their spiritual journey. This might be helpful to you. Um, first, there's the man muk. This is a person who is self-centered and only thinks about himself and the material world around him and is totally oblivious to God. So perhaps that's you. Maybe not, although they'd probably say some of you are Sikhs, you're, you're seeking God. Um, stage two is the Sikh, anyone who sets out on the path of learning and meets the specific definition of a Sikh as appears in the uh, code of conduct. Although, yeah, so maybe you're not a Sikh. Uh, stage three, the Khalsa, this is someone who is totally dedicated to Sikhism, one who has shed his ego and personality and truly honors the memory of the guru, uh, Singh, through his actions and his deeds. Remember that guru who had the sword that, that called these men to follow him totally at the cost of their life? This is a Khalsa, someone who is so dedicated, they, their life ceases to exist. And then, of course, there's the Gu, the Gur Muk. This is one who has achieved salvation and is totally God-centered. Now, once again, sometimes, here's a little bit of a hint for you, sometimes false religions fool you because they have shades of goodness in them. They have shades of truth in them mixed with horrific lies. And, and some of these things sound kind of good. I should be less of me and more centered on God. But then it's like, but, but the ultimate goal of Sikhism is to seeming to be Nothing, and to just uh, not exist at all anymore. But those are the, the three, I'm sorry, the, the four, four stages. Let's go to our final question. Are Sikhs really wrong? Now, with the, with the other religions and false forms of Christianity that I've covered, it's been, it's been an interesting study 
to kind of think about how they misunderstand, perhaps, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why they're so wrong. But, but today, I want to make a point to, to, to suggest to you that any other religion than the religion that trusts in Jesus for saving grace and justification before God is a false religion that's going to send people to hell. And it may seem good, it may seem fine, these people may seem kind and good and good citizens, but that doesn't mean that they have hope before God. And and that's how we need to think about every religion outside of Christ. Just because your religion makes you a good moral person does not mean you're fine, and I should be fine with you being fine. It doesn't mean I should say, well, Sikhs are good, I'll just let them stay. Just because they're not harming anybody, I should not care about their eternal state. No, we should care about all people that are separated from Christ. And, and by the way, just because someone's morally good does not make the gospel suddenly wrong. The gospel tells you you are a sinner. Standing before a God who is going to judge sinners, And if we just give it all up and say, well, Sikhs are really nice and kind and moral and uplifting and so encouraging and so happy and so positive, I'm just not going to care about them. We're we're essentially saying the gospel is not true. The gospel says, regardless of how good you feel, you are lost before God and facing an eternity of judgment. And we must be sober about that. Let me just give you a kind of a theology. That's a big, scary word to talk about everything the Bible says about something, which is a really big, scary concept because there's only 10 minutes left, but I'll try to be fast. But let's just do a theology study what the Bible says about false religion. Okay? What does the Bible say about false religion? Should we just say, hey, if if people are good, if they're not killing each other, if they're not cannibals somewhere, I'm fine with them. What does the Bible say about all false religion. Here, point number one, all false religion comes from sin. All false religion comes from sin. This is what the Bible says. As mankind rejects God, they do not stay in a spiritual vacuum. They will worship something. Mankind was made to worship something. And when mankind rejects God, because their heart is in rebellion to God, they will fill the void with some other form of worship. And you may say, I'm an atheist. I don't worship anything. Yes, you do. You worship your head, your mind, your belief, your freedom, your independence, your pride. But everybody worships something. Romans 1, 23 um, through 25 says this, uh, man exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator rather than uh, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. And what is the result? God lets them go to the foolishness of their religious imagination, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And we need to say this even about religions like Sikhism too. They may correctly understand that our world has problems and we need need to be kind to one another. They, They might recognize this, but we need to insist that simply acts of sinfulness before God is not the biggest problem. Your biggest problem is you are by nature a sinner before God. What what does that mean to be by nature a sinner? It means you are by nature 
in rebellion against God. From the womb to the tomb, you are opposed to God, and any sound of God you will resist, unless the Holy Spirit softens your heart through the preaching of the gospel to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. You are by nature in rebellion to God. And all false religion comes from this nature, this sin. I'm going to choose anything other than the true God. It is actually an active rebellion against God. This leads to another thing that we need to say. False religion has been around from the beginning. This isn't something new. Sikhism is, of course, a very new religion, you know, 1500s, 1600s, and so on. But false religion itself is nothing new. Matter of fact, from the beginning, God was warning his people about false gods. Exodus 34, 14, you shall not worship any other god. And then maybe you're saying to yourself, is God just saying there, hey, every nation just, just stick with their own gods. You guys stick with your gods, we'll stick with our gods. No, mixies, right? No, that's not what God is saying. Because if you continue to study the Bible, you'll also see God mocks every other religion. God mocks them as worthless The reason why the children of Israel were warned so much about the danger of idolatry is because Idols are worthless. These gods are false gods. Here's a few of my favorite references. Write this down. Isaiah 44, 9. Those who form a graven image are all of them futile, and their desirable things are of no profit. Um, Even their own witnesses fail to see or to know so that they will be put to shame. Those people who make idols are worthless. Or how about Psalm 97, 7? Notice the shame that is poured on upon people that worship false gods. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Or, or, or how about this? Um, Psalm 96, 4 and 5. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is more fearsome than all gods. Are you, oh, there, there are many gods. No, but it keeps going. For all of the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. By the way, idols there is referring to something that is a non-entity, that's weak, that's insignificant, that is totally without value. Worship God because these things are false. I, I love the story of Elijah on Mount, Mount Carmel. It is probably the most, the, the, the most striking way the Bible can, uh, can describe the emptiness of false gods. Sometimes the Bible just tells you what the truth is. Sometimes the Bible shows you what the truth is and in a narrative form. It's showing you what the truth is. And sometimes the narrator is just like bending over backwards trying to communicate his message. It's hilarious. Uh, 1 Kings 18, <clears throat> Elijah is letting the prophets of Baal kind of do their thing, trying to get... They're gods to send fire to prove that they're the true God. And then Elijah just cracks. He can't contain himself anymore. And he says, call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied or he is relieving himself or is on a long journey, perhaps. Or maybe he's asleep or maybe he needs to be awakened. Maybe you guys need to be a little bit louder. The narrator is like, yes, I hope, I hope these I hope these people in the anchored room, you know, a couple thousand years from now, get this, get this, that God is not listening. Why is the God not listening? 
But then the narrator goes on. So they cried with a loud voice and gashed themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. Now it happened when noon had passed that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. And then here's the narrator just giving it all away right here. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Do you get the point? There's no other gods. They're, they're worthless. And the author is just bending over backwards. And later, Isaiah will say it explicitly, and, and the Bible will say it explicitly. But right here, the narrator is trying to say, there is no other God but Yahweh. Get it through your head, Israel. Get it through your head, anchored, you know. All other religions are worthless, but don't let that deceive you into thinking that they're not dangerous. The Bible also says false religion is exceedingly dangerous. It's empty. How is it dangerous? How does this hurt me if there's no God other than Yahweh? Look at these uh, references. Psalm 115 verse 8 says this, those who make them, referring to idols, become like them. If you worship a false god, you become like that god. And what is that god? Useless, worthless, empty, without value. That's what you become like as you worship a false god. Revelation 9, verse 20, has a very striking picture during the tribulation of God sending down judgment and the peoples of the earth clinging to their idols instead of worshiping the true god. The true God is literally raining down judgment on them and they refuse to repent. They refuse to turn because they're holding to their gods. You ever go swimming with somebody who can't swim? Maybe this is a bad illustration. But what happens to you if you refuse to let go of that person that doesn't swim? This is a bad illustration. They'll pull you down, right? If you're holding on to an anchor, right? Oh, man, we dropped our anchor out of our boat. I'm going to go down for it, Pop. You grab onto the anchor, and, you, and you're hanging on to it because you're trying to hold on to this anchor, and it's just pulling you down. That's what idols do to you. They keep you from the true God, and you become so determined to worship this God that you've made up, that your, your ancestors have worshipped and their ancestors have worshipped, that you say, this God must be true. He's, this God has been around forever, and you hold on to this God until it brings you to death and hell. False gods are terribly dangerous, but not only because, because of that. Notice this. God reveals that false religion is dangerous because false religion is also demonic. Uh, Psalm 106.37 uh, says it's destructive, self-destructive and demonic. Demons are making people and enticing people to believe. Uh, It says in Psalm 106, they sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. It seems real. Spiritual things seem to be happening. That's Psalm 106, 37. But that's because demons are concocting it to happen, to deceive people. Matter of fact, this is exactly out of the devil's playbook. Um, John 8, 44 Remember, the devil is somebody who is trying to do one thing, keep you from God. He's going to lie, he's going to steal, he's going to destroy to do that one goal. And John eight forty four says this to Jews 
who are holding so fast to their Judaism that they refuse to come to Jesus, what does Jesus say to them? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And it says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Why? To deceive people. Or think about this, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan is thrilled with people who find good moral religions that will send them to hell. He's okay with that, right? His job is to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is fine with deceiving people all the way to hell. Notice this, false religions, yeah, Yeah, they're worthless, but they're dangerous, and they're also powerful. They're powerfully deceitful. But let's talk about another thing in terms of false religion. And this is something we need to remember. False religion. Uh, God warns that false religion is bringing his wrath. And this is why we can't be indifferent about it. This is why we can't say, well, as long as they're not hurting anybody. No, false religion is bringing God's wrath. And and you're like, why is God going to be so angry at good moral people? But but remember what every religion is at its heart. Every religion at its heart is rebellion against God. And if God is righteous, if God is good, if God is true, he must respond to any glory being taken from him. Any, Ezekiel 30, verse 13, uh, God is, is constantly making judgments like this. He says, I will make the images cease from Memphis. God has it out for false religions. Anything that steals and robs his glory, he is going to destroy. And we read this in, in Acts 17, right? Uh, Paul was filled with, uh, he was provoked in his spirit and this, this testifies to how God feels about any form of false worship that robs glory from him. They were very religious. Notice they, they, they worshiped a God that they didn't know by name. But notice what Paul says to these Athenians. Remember this. He said, everyone must repent. doesn't matter how good you are. You must repent. You must have a heart turn. You must say, I am in rebellion to God. This is what repentance is. I am living a life of rebellion against God, and I must turn and go this way to God. I must stop running from God and run to God. Even though he is my judge, the only way he will become my savior is if I turn and run to him. And that's what Paul says to the men in Athens. And he even says, there is judgment coming. That's why you need to repent. Because God's wrath will answer every form of religion that's stealing glory from himself. But let's go to the last point of why, uh, about false religions. God commands repentance. And that's what we've been talking about. God commands repentance. And notice this, God has also provided a rescuer. That's why That's why we go to the Sikhs. That's why we go to the Muslims. That's why we go to anyone, right? 
Because God not only commands repentance, but he has made it possible in the person of Jesus Christ. Not by works that you've done in righteousness, but by Jesus Christ and Christ alone. You can stand before the, the God of the universe, your creator, Lord, and not receive wrath, but receive welcome. God, God commands people to go into the world and tell about him. Um, Psalm 96, Yahweh says, Yahweh says that his name should be sung among the nations. Jesus, in Matthew 28 and 19, Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, right? He says, you must send people out to tell all the nations. Or in Luke 24, after he opens their mind, he says, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's the reason why Christ came. Because Sikhs are wrong. Because Muslims are wrong. And this is why we must go. Because our Lord commanded us to. And the grace of his gospel is so overwhelmingly satisfying and refreshing to our burdened souls that we must go and tell others. That's what the gospel is. It is a rescue mission from the wrath of God to becoming with God. Regardless of how moral or good or upright you are, you need the gospel because of your heart problem. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this time that we've been able to spend. I pray that this has helped these students grow in their concern for the lost and their, their passion for your gospel. I pray this all uh, would be a blessing to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.